What's up, everybody? You're listening to Salah's Corner with the one and only Salah Muhammad. So I had the pleasure of sitting with Isaiah Thomas. He's running for city council at large. But that's not exactly why I wanted to talk to him. Uh, We had a very broad conversation surrounding how we can tackle poverty within our city. And what you'll find is it's not a one solution fix. I'm not going to give that all here. You're going to have to listen to the full episode. But uh, what we talked about is the multiple avenues that are crucial in order to fix poverty within Philadelphia. Just to give you a little information, poverty in Philadelphia is the highest of the 10 largest cities in the country. So not L.A., not New York, not Chicago, Boston, Atlanta, Philadelphia, at over 25 percent of the city being in poverty. While the country sits at, I believe it's like 15, that's such a huge difference. But let's also note what poverty is. So for a family of four, poverty for them would be about 35,000 a year. Now, anyone that is a family of four, anyone that's a family of two, having 35000 a year isn't enough. A fa- one person making 35000 a year just isn't really enough to sustain themselves, to pay for emergencies as they arrive. Let's say your car breaks down. Let's say you have a medical emergency. Let's say you're trying to pay for school. All of these things that we try to do with our lives, you know, those that bare minimum level of poverty just isn't enough. And 25% of the city, a fourth of our city, lives at those means. So we had a conversation about that and how our city can begin to move forward as a city that's supposed to be multicultural, but also a democratic city. I'm sure a lot of you are wondering how I make my podcast sound so crisp and clean. Well, I have to thank the folks at Rec Philly. They provide me the space, the time and equipment to make this podcast happen. And it doesn't just end there. It's also an opportunity to connect with other creative individuals just like me and not just other podcasters. I'm talking writers, musicians, photographers, anyone that considers themselves a creative individual. So if that's you, head on down to Rec Philly. It is super affordable. The memberships are great and it's an opportunity to flex your creative muscles. If that's you, I hope to see you there soon. Isaiah, how are you today, man? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I appreciate good. it. Um, so I, I I came across your your profile really on Instagram. So okay. shout out to whoever's doing your Instagram because <laughs> that's how I got my introduction into you. They're okay. doing a good job at putting your platform out there, um, your campaign messaging, and all of that. So thank you. You just got somebody to raise. There we there we well, go. Whoever that mine. is, <laughs> um, <laughs> raise my hand. But huh. it it. It really introduced me to who you are, and I saw saw you making waves into the community, and not just, um, you know, the memes and kind of things that tends to happen on social media, but mm-hmm. you were really out there, and we're visiting places. You were visiting some tough neighborhoods, some 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 just connecting with the people. Sure. Um, so tell tell us a little bit about let's let's backtrack though. Right. You know, right, right. So I know I saw. Uh, a little video you posted on Instagram was with your son mm-hmm. at the uh, at the Sankofa. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about your involvement with the school mm-hmm. and uh, your passion getting into education. Okay, yeah, sure. I mean, so first and foremost, thank you for having me. Sure. I appreciate it. I love being involved in great dialogue. Um, so I'll say um, I, when I think about 
you know, how I got involved in this thing and, you know, my son and my passion for education and things like that, it all is kind of intertwined in one another, and it all really goes back to the Philadelphia Freedom Schools program for me. Um, and so one of the, when I talk about my campaign um, and maybe some of the things you see on social media, it's not it's not me visiting. You know, this is this is my life. This is where I am. You know, my son goes to school in Kensington, so we do see poverty on a consistent basis. Um, I coach high school basketball. I've been teaching for years. Mm. Um, these young people that I work with, they're authentic relationships. They're not just props for, you know, videos or for a campaign that I'm actually running right now. Um, so for me, you know, again, it all started for me with the Philadelphia Freedom Schools program. When I was in high school, um, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because it, it created my perception of leadership, specifically ser- serving leadership, and it put me in a space where I really began to not just tap into some of my strengths as far as my interpersonal skills, um, but also uh, put me in a position where I developed a, a authentic, incredible history of not just myself, but black folks in general. You know, when you grow up in a space, and, and, you know, I got great parents, great household, and, you know, all that support system is there for me. So that, that foundation was always there. But then when you go to schools and, and you go into spaces and, and where the subconscious is telling you uh, different things about folks that look like you, that right. come from where you come from, it has an impact on you. And then you get this big culture shock when you go into a program called Freedom Schools and history isn't started with slavery. You right. know, that right. just pretty much changes your entire uh, perception of self, both consciously and subconsciously. So for me, that's my start. You know, I started with the Philadelphia Freedom Schools program as I was a, as a high school student. I moved up to leadership ranks. It put me in a position to not only become a teacher and to help found Sankofa. Sankofa mm-hmm. found it based on the Freedom Schools model and the Freedom Schools movement. But that also put me in a position to meet um, local elected officials, and that inspired me to run for office. You know, I would have never ran for office if it wasn't for somebody that looked like me that came from where I came from that was already doing the work. You know, that kind of put the battery in my back, and that's how I turned from, you know, traditional academic, Afrocentric education, mentored in after-school programs, to more of a focus on, on politics. There, There is something powerful seeing someone that looks like you in a powerful position or in a position of influence. And I think that is something that lacks within just our culture in general, but specifically within Philadelphia. I mean, it does two things for you. The first thing it does is it exposes you to a profession that you might not necessarily have been aware of. Mm -hmm. You know, I can only aspire to be what it is that I know exists. You know, it's tough for the tough for you to ask a young person to be something that don't even, they don't, that they don't even know is out there or to be good at something that they've never even been exposed Mm -hmm. to. Um, But then the other thing is, you know, once you've been exposed to it, is it, is it, is it attainable? Right. You know, can I really do it? Right. And once you talk to the people who have those seats and who are in those positions and you recognize, oh, snap, this person only has a high school diploma or they only got a bachelor's degree or their degree is in, you know, um, sociology. But this is politics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it, it, it just becomes much more attainable. It's like, oh, man, I can do this. And that's important for young people to be able to have not just that perception of self as far as who they are and where they come from, but also where can I go? Where do I think I could be in five or ten years from now? What was that connection directly related to politics? You said you were introduced and, and surrounded yourself with individuals within politics that looked like you. Mm-hmm. What what was that? So it was because of the Freedom Schools program. So, again, I started in um, um, 1999, and I put myself in a position to do good, you know, show, show up to work every day on time, work mm-hmm. hard, learn some stuff, take care of your business. And um, I eventually became the supervisor, and I was running the entire site. And so as the supervisor that was responsible for planning the summer program, 
you know, you had to work with some of the elected officials, specifically mm-hmm. our site, because that was how some of the things got paid for. And at the time, when I was the supervisor of our local Freedom Schools program, um, our state representative was a guy named Tony Payton Jr. And Tony Payton Jr. at that time was the youngest legislator in the entire state of Pennsylvania, 203 state reps. Mm-hmm. You know, he's the only young guy. And Tony is the person who essentially put the battery in my back. He was a tangible example of somebody who came from where I came from, who looked like me, who was intelligent, right? It's not, I'm not, you know, you can't, you got to have some level of savvy not to be involved in this thing. Um, But at the same time, made it, made it seem attainable, you know, looked at me on a consistent basis and told me, you can do this. You can be here. You can be sitting in this seat one day. And when, when, when folks do that for you, you know, it, 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 it not just inspires you, it makes you feel like you're obligated to essentially take on that charge, not just for yourself, but, you know, for your, for your people, especially when you see your people struggling. You talk about um, being in from Kensington. No, no, no. I, no or not being from Kensington, Kensington, but from the, right, right, going mm-hmm. to the school in Kensington. What is, what's it like? I, I, Kensington gets a bad rep in the city, uh, like one of the worst reps, really, for just level of poverty, drug use, mm-hmm. just kind of. That there's just a very negative stigma about Kensington, uh-huh. and what is that like having to have someone go into school in that neighborhood, mm-hmm. and the the negative stereotypes, and and not even just stereotypes. I mean, I, I've certainly driven down um, different neighborhoods in Kensington, and it's 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 a very tough image to take in just walking through the streets, and sure. you, you see. You see dope dealers, you see um, uh, addicts, you see alcoholics, you see tons of homeless people. What, how do you find ways to improve that neighborhood mm-hmm. in a school where, you're, where your son is going? Yeah, I mean, so for me, I grew up in Oakland, mm-hmm. right? But um, I actually, uptown boy. yeah, uptown boy for <laughs> sure. But um, I actually, because, you know, I'm a sports guy as well. So um, not only did I play um, sports growing up, I actually coached uh, mm-hmm. basketball and softball as an adult. More basketball and softball. But it puts you in a position where you're always traveling what, all What position are you playing basketball? Well, my name is Isaiah Thomas. <laughs> softball, that's an easy question. Um, but it, it, so guard. Um, but no. Um, so, right, right, right. right. Um, so I grew up in Oakland, but again, sports put me in a position where, you know, I've, I've, I've been all across the city mm-hmm. as well as some of the professional experiences I've had. And so, you know, one thing about Philadelphia is neighborhoods have stories. Yes. Right. And if you ask people the, the story of Kensington, Again, I grew up in uh, uh, grew up in Oakland, and my son goes to school in Kensington. But I actually went to school in Kensington. I went to Conwell for middle school, mm-hmm. which is right off of um, Clearfield and Jasper. Yeah. So I can just think about what it was like for me traveling from Oakland to Conwell as a seventh grader and as that's an eighth a, that's grader. A, such a stark in, uh, difference between the two. It sure is. So the the Kensington that I traveled to on a consistent basis, right? Yeah, it was uh, wasn't the cleanest neighborhood. Yeah, there was some uh, drug activity, right? But now what you see is you see not just drug activity, you see open prostitution, you see open drugs, you see um, uh, paraphernalia, right? And if you look at the intersection of Kensington and Cumberland, you have about five or six schools in an eight-block radius. So it's not just my son, it's, it's, us, it's, a, it's a plethora of children who are growing up in a community where they're becoming desensitized to some of the nastiest ills that we have as a society. Mm. And it means nothing to them because they're seeing it on a consistent basis. We're subconsciously programming them to believe that this is the norm. 
And that's just not good. Now, every neighborhood has their own stories, right? If you talk to some of the guys in Logan or in Albany, right, they'll talk to you a lot about the gun violence. Right. So while Kensington is one of our uh, problematic neighborhoods as it relates to open drug activity, open prostitution, and um, things of that nature, it's actually not a violent neighborhood. So that's one of the stigmas that the community has that isn't necessarily true. It's not the most violent neighborhood in the city. Um, when you look at some of the gun violence that exists in other pockets of the city, but that's Philly for you, right? right. We're a story, we're a city of neighborhoods, and every neighborhood has a narrative as far as, <laughs> unfortunately, what's wrong uh, more often than what's right. Um, one of the things that I, I've noticed a lot lately in the city, um, and that kind of paints the narrative of Kensington is uh, poverty, but I, I think it's 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 an issue of high concentration of poverty, mm-hmm. where I, I think Kensington is a, is a is a huge product product of it. Different pockets within within West Philly are, are like that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you have you know the universities and, and expanding, but you have these little pockets of just. Yeah, uh, abandoned homes in yeah. West Philly, you know, four or five blocks away from universities. The how do you address fixing some of those um, high poverty, high concentration of poverty issues when you have like the city's doing all of these different projects? You know, you got you got yeah. Comcast one and two. Mm-hmm. You got the renovations that took place in City Hall. Yeah. Um, you got Love Park looking beautiful, beautiful but right? then. You know, on the outside image is, is Philly is on a is on, on a rise. Yeah, it's, it's a booming swing. city. But yeah. you have these high concentration areas of poverty where people are really going through hard times. Sure. And I mean, that's those are those longtime residents, right? Those right. are those people whose stories start with. I was born and raised in the city of Philadelphia. Right. They're the ones who are struggling the most right now. Um, and like you said, the poverty issue, what we're the poorest big city in the country. Yeah. So clearly uh, we're doing something wrong as far as how we tax our constituents. We're doing something wrong with um, the tax incentives that we provide. We're doing something wrong with how we let corporations come into the city and, you know, set up shop without paying their fair share while simultaneously offering a terrible wage and not giving people the right to organize. Um, So we have some big problems. Um, And then outside of that, our schools are terrible. And so because our schools are terrible, we're constantly creating um, generations of young people who don't have a quality education, who leave school without having um, the tools that they need to either go into the professional world or go into some level of higher academia. So I think what we've stepped into is the perfect whirlwind of problems that create these pockets of poverty all across the city of Philadelphia. We have issues of housing. We have issues of wages. We have issues of employment. We have issues of being over-policed. We have issues of how do you have issues of being over-policed while simultaneously right. having an increase in gun violence? Right. You know, and so this is these are these are the contradicting ills that we face as a municipality. And I think that first and foremost, it requires having people being in position of leadership that cares about the people that are suffering, that understands what they're going through, and that will fight and advocate for that specific demographic, because the the sad part is the same audience that we're talking about as a mass, they don't vote. Mm. So because these folks who are in poverty, who do go to the worst schools, who are struggling the most in the city of Philadelphia, because they don't vote, how do you now hold people like me accountable? Absolutely. It, it's you spoke that beautifully. It, it's it's a message that I try to take to different people, my network of friends or who I'm, who I'm connecting and conversing with about sure. politics and, and I mean and, and this is what the I power say. of their vote. I mean and this is what I say to them, right? And I and I do I say it more to children than I do adults, but you know, um especially eighteen year olds, nineteen year olds, you don't go to the store, right? And 
pay for a pair of sneakers and leave without sneakers and let them choose what sneakers you get. Yeah. You don't do that, right? You don't go out to eat and give them the money for the food and say, whatever y'all give me is what I'll take. Right. And, and government is the same way because you're putting your money into this thing. Mm-hmm. You wake up, you work nine, ten hours, whether you're an entrepreneur or you're working for somebody else, government is going to get their fair share. And if you live in the city of Philadelphia, they're going to get a big part of their fair share as far as the way we tax people in this city. So it just doesn't make sense to me. It, it doesn't make sense to me that people don't vote once they've been informed. Right. But I get why the masses don't vote, because they just haven't been informed. Right. One of the biggest things on my platform is I want to make sure that we mandate civics and government and political science this senior year in high school. Mm-hmm. I've been a teacher. I taught for years. Right. And one of the hard parts of being a teacher is the uh, weight that comes from standardized testing. Right. But the senior year is a year where there's not a lot of standardized testing. Right. And if you've been in a, high, a senior in high school in Philadelphia, you know, that's chill time. That's you checked out. Oh, man. That's chill time. This is kicking in. Absolutely. Time. If we could just take, change that mindset mm-hmm. right there. Right. Teach civics and government with the option to get registered to vote. Teach financial literacy. Right. So they can learn how to open a bank account, how to write a check and just the basic needs that we probably struggle with transitioning right. from high school into adulthood. Uh, teaching media literacy. Right. So we can stop some of the beef that we see on social media. And so young people can understand how to use social media and other forms of media as a positive platform. And then most importantly, man, get these kids out to school. Let them go on a work site or a job site or be somewhere for about six weeks from nine to five, especially in the springtime, because they've already clocked out. Right. If they were checking into somewhere that was preparing them for the next phase of life, right? Now we're talking about creating a body as far as our, our children who are graduating from high school and, and even more prepared to either go into higher academia or step into the workforce. But right now, when our children graduate from high school, all they're prepared to do is go into retail. It's, um, I, I, I get pretty nerdy sometimes, and I was reading the study that referenced uh, Philadelphia being um, the of the 10 biggest cities having the largest uh, or highest poverty rate. Mm-hmm. And I started to dive into it a little bit. And one of the things that stuck out to me was the income disparities between those who have even just some mm-hmm. college education mm-hmm. versus those who have a uh, high school diploma. The difference was about 15 points. Sure, especially in this city, right? Because we don't have a whole lot of manufacturing jobs, right? right? We, we offer a terrible minimum wage as far as the state of Pennsylvania. And we don't see enough of an effort as far as organizing and putting people in a position to be able to create new innovative economies. Look, if we're not going to, first of all, we have to change our curriculum so young people are learning coding and technology. And I talked about a bunch of things that needs to change within our curriculum in our schools, right? But even if, even while we're doing that for the next generation, right? What about my generation, right? right? What about the folks who went yeah. to those films? We still living in poverty. Oh, yeah. And, 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 not, and we deserve an opportunity to earn a quality living for ourselves and our family, mm-hmm. right? Let's look at something like Uber and Lyft, right? Let's regulate the gig economy. Let's say that we're not going to allow Uber and Lyft to operate the way they operate. We're going to turn those jobs into city service jobs where people can work for the city, provide those same quality service, and earn a good wage for themselves and their family. You know, I'm a big fan of, of taking risks. Let's look at the manufacturing world, right? Let's talk to the eds, the meds, the beds, the schools, the hospitals, um, and the hotels in the city of Philadelphia, and let's get them to coordinating their manufacturing purchases locally, 
Right mm. now we're 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 putting a spark into the local economy as far as low skill level work because that's what we have to think about. We have to think about the generations of people who went to failing schools, who were over police, who've been incarcerated, who's been unfairly given records and putting hurdles in the putting hurdles in their life where it limits their opportunity to provide a quality living for themselves and their family. Are we now telling them they have to leave Philadelphia? Because if they're not leaving and they're going to stay, which is what I want them to do, we got to be innovative in how we think about earning a quality living for themselves and the family. And what do those wages look like? Because right now, $8 an hour, that's not going to get it. In the city of Philadelphia, teachers make $42,000 a year to start. Most teachers work a second job. Right. That's unheard of. My son's in first grade. I'd want his teacher to go home, mark some papers, get some rest, plan his lesson plan for the next day, not go work her part-time job or his part-time job. We need teachers making $60,000 a year to start. That's what we need. And until we start to think about these things um, on a level that we really recognize the impact it's having on our communities, we're going to continue to see these cycles of poverty. We're going to continue to see cycles of gun violence, issues of homelessness. Now, in the morning time, I try to spend time at, at train stations. And earlier in the week, I was at Fern Rock, and I was talking to a woman who's 40 years old, who's getting on a train. Mm-hmm. I'm not, not going to say she's exactly 40, but she looked like Probably. she was in her 40s. She's getting on a train, and she's on her way to uh, college, right, to mm-hmm. go get her associate's degree. But she's also homeless. Wow. And she talked about homeless in the sense of, you know, um, I'm living with my aunt. Uh, for the next couple of days. Then after I stay with my aunt for the next couple of days, I'm going to go stay with my cousin for the next couple of days. Right. Wow. And so her, pers- she, she said she was, she's in the process of being educated. She understood that she was homeless. But when we think about homeless and poverty in Philadelphia, often we think about the person that's laying on the ground that we walk past. We think of Kensington. We think of Kensington. We mm-hmm. think of center city. We think of what happens at 52nd and market and some of the train stations yeah. that we walk past. That's not real homelessness in Philadelphia. That's homelessness. I'm not saying it's fake, but the core problem of homelessness isn't necessarily the homelessness that we see on a consistent basis. It's that person that's waking up every day, that's fighting, that's working hard, but still can't put themselves in a position where they can provide a quality living for themselves and their family because of the cost of living in comparison with the earn the opportunity to earn a quality wage. You know, we're we're delivering a message right now to constituents of Philadelphia and it's not one that I'm a fan of. So that's what inspires me to run for office and to advocate for the demogra- the demographics that I advocate for because if I don't, who will? You know, uh, I started this journey 10 years ago, and our city looks very different right now than what it did 10 years ago. You you specifically talked about uh, wage earners, um, you know, getting an increase over $8 an hour. Some, you know, some make me make $10, $12 an hour. What would you say um, is a financial uh, rate that would allow people to sustain themselves um, and take care of their family or, you know, be able to go to college and pursue a further degree in something else, whether it be associate or trade, something that, you know, while I'm working my hotel job or I'm working my service job, I can still support my family without wondering, you know, if the the car breaks down, I can't get to work because I can't pay for it because I don't have any money in the bank. Sure. If SEPTA goes on strike again, how am I going to get around because yeah. – Something's on strike, and yeah. you know my job is dependent on that. What what is a what is a livable wage uh, to you, and something that you would support if you got into office? So when I ran in 2015, right, there was a strong campaign, and I signed on to that campaign, and I fought, and I advocated, and I still believe today 
Um, and, and no, so I don't believe it today. It actually should probably be more. But in 2015, we felt like a, a quality livable wage was $15 an hour four years ago. Think about the increase, the cost of living in Philadelphia now, 2019, compared right. to 2015. So if we felt like $15 an hour was a livable wage, you know, before the increase of, 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 of uh, products in the city of Philadelphia, before the increase in the cost of SEPTA right. in the city of Philadelphia, right? If $15 an hour was what we advocated for in 2015, you know, we need even more than that now. So for me, I would say no less than $15 an hour. I know we have a governor that's looking to move it to $12.50 $12, or twelve twelve something like that, yeah. and then eventually $15 an hour. But that's where we need to be. You know, $15 an hour is the number that is determined that's, that was needed then based on economic studies for a, a constituent in Pennsylvania to earn a quality living. And what are we talking about? We're talking about basic needs, right? Just being able to pay your rent, put some food on the table, make sure that your water is running, make sure that you have the basic needs that folks need, that that, that is required for people to put themselves in a the position to earn a quality living. And so, yeah, $15 an hour. And, and again, that's, that, that's, that's minimum wage. I the one thing that I think of when it comes to, and I know a lot of other people think of this as well, when it comes to raising that minimum wage to 15 is jobs being outsourced or turned into automation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have a lot of friends. I know why my full-time job, you know, one of the things a lot of people fear is within the next few years is, oh, I, I know my job is going to be replaced. It's going to be automated. It's going to be more people are using services online, especially when it comes to retail, mm-hmm. um, hotels. A lot of those jobs are, are being automated and turned to online positions. How do we then innovate the, our industries so that we can make sure that there are careers available to some of those individuals that end up being displaced? Sure. Technology we, we've watched, you know, for our entire lifetime, we've watched technology expand mm-hmm. and take away jobs from people, which means it's going to happen regardless. Absolutely. We shouldn't look at the increase of minimum wage um, as competition to technology. It's not. We, we, we have to recognize that corporations and big businesses, like you said in the beginning, they're making more than what they've ever made. Absolutely. The wage yeah. discrepancy is bigger than what has ever been in, in the history of this country between the haves and the have-nots. So what we have to recognize is, number one, technology will change how we operate as a society, as it has since we've been on this earth. That can't change the narrative as to what we pay people as far as when they wake up every day and what they're worth when they're putting money in the pockets of these big businesses and these big industries. When you think about how do we make sure as a society and as people, specifically poor people and people of color, how do we make sure that we stay positioned to be able to take advantage of, of professional opportunities as technology begins to change what the uh, work economy consists of? And that, that goes back to my point as far as our schools. We have to change our curriculum. We're, we, we, for generations, have not put ourselves in a position where the majority of the children that we educate in Philadelphia are graduating from our public schools with a quality education. If we see that technology is about to change the professional landscape as far as how we operate and how we live, then we ought to change our curriculum now. We can't essentially say that wages need to be different. Yeah, wages need to be different. They need to increase. But we wages have been frozen long enough. We can't freeze wages uh, to support technology. 
I mean, wages have been. When when was the last increase? I want to say it was like early two thousands or maybe two thousands. You figure this two thousand seven. Right now, the minimum wage in Pennsylvania is below eight dollars an hour. Seven twenty five. I might be seven fifty. Seven fifteen. But any like below eight dollars an hour, just think about the fact that what 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 could a person do for a living where you shouldn't even give them eight dollars after sixty minutes of work? Right. That's insane. Especially in a year where we, I mean, in a time when we're talking about, you know, the cost of living in the city being higher than what has ever been before. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I understand the concern with technology and people worried about technology putting us in a position where it could, we can, we can move and lose jobs. But man, big businesses is winning already. And what big business has consistently showed us is if they had to choose between people and their bottom dollar, they're choosing their bottom dollar. So as soon as technology puts them in a position where they can get rid of people, they're going to do that anyway. The foundation of, of everything that you said tends to come back to education. And that's my perception because Absolutely. I see it through the lens of an educator and I see it through the lens of the demographic in the city of Philadelphia who's in the biggest need, who has the smallest voice, and who suffers the most. So I'm a... Uh you know, I'm 35, 40 years old. Um, you know, I'm probably making $12, $11 an hour. Maybe I'm a housekeeper at a local hotel in the city. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I don't really vote, or maybe I did vote occasionally if, you know, if it, um, if a candidate is popular enough and I see him on TV enough. But I generally, um, I'm not too involved in politics. How do I, or even if I do vote, how do I make my voice heard other than just waiting until elections come around and go into the ballot box. I think for a lot of people, there is a disconnect on what their abilities are in the city and and how to hold their their, uh, officials accountable. And a disconnect exists because they're not informed, right? They don't know, okay, if there's an issue with the minimum wage, man, look, that's your state legislators. Call your state senator. Call your state rep. Most folks don't even know that their state rep, they don't, you got a large percentage of our population who don't know the difference between U.S. senator and the state senator, right? So it goes back to the fundamental issues of schools because how can I hold somebody accountable for infrastructure that I don't understand? There's a lot of How can I referee a sport that I don't know the rules to? There's a lot of people that uh, that don't know what a city council does. Oh, absolutely not. They, especially city council at large, right? So often when um, I'm doing um, interviews or talking to a group of people that, you know, first I have to break down city council. I have to explain to them city council is the legislative branch of the city while the mayor is the executive branch. You have to break down that there's 10 district seats and seven at-large seats and two is reserved for the minority party, five is reserved for the majority party. And I'm going for one of the five seats, Democratic seats, that's reserved for the majority party. And then you have to talk about the difference between a district council person who's in charge of a land and a section of the city and a council at-large person who has to essentially campaign and, and try to get votes from anybody that's a registered Democrat mm-hmm. in the city of Philadelphia. You even sometimes have to um, talk about how – You've gotten to the point as far as being a candidate and who supports you and what it means to have a war support and union support and things of that capacity. And this stuff is politics one on one. And you can't ask people, you know, you can't ask me to go outside and fix a car if I've never been to, you know, the classes and the workshops that it takes to learn the parts of the car. Mm. I just can't do it. Right. So when you tell somebody to not just vote, but hold somebody accountable, you might as well be telling me to go outside and fix that car. I've never been exposed to that type of, of, of training that's needed for me to understand how the moving parts of a car work. Well, government is the same way. 
If a person has never been exposed to how government works and what it does, they feel like they're just throwing, ripping, burning money in the air, yeah. wasting their time. Because no matter what happens, my life ain't going to change. My life isn't going to be different. And that's not that's not true. You know, us on the political side, we know that's not true. Right. We understand, you know, that because Krasner is the DA, you know, certain people have been free from jail. And without Krasner being the DA, certain people might still be locked up. Absolutely. So, yeah, elections matter. They definitely have consequences. But what it is is that, you know, we don't we, we're not often put in a position where we can connect the dots to how voting or not voting had a direct impact on our lives. And until that happens, until we're putting people in a space where as though they're constantly seeing the importance of elections, until voting is a part of our cultural norm, you know, we're always going to have this percentage of our population that's just misinformed and unfortunately um, won't be involved in a political process. All right, I got two last questions. Sure. First one um, is going to be much more difficult than the second one. Okay. But first one is Philadelphia. Philadelphia is very well known to be a democratic city. Mm-hmm. It's just just the way it's been for a very long time, at least for the last you know couple of decades. Mm-hmm. Yet the and the Democratic Party is is known for supporting people of color, uh, people within poverty. Um, and trying to uplift them and educate them on uh, getting involved in politics and turning out the vote and all of those things. Yet poverty has stayed high in Philadelphia. Crime has stayed high. We've seen um, practices when it comes to policing, um, you know, things like stop and frisk, um, that have been associated with the Democratic Party in Philadelphia. Um, and it, it's, it's, I would almost attribute it to the old Democratic Party, uh, you know, of the late 80s and 90s, where we had some of these policies that weren't very different from Republican policies when you look back on certain things. Mm-hmm. How do we, how do you take the party into the future? How do you break away from some of those old policies and, and create a new, um, message out there because honestly, it's the 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 Democratic Party of old has it's 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 kind of the same old stuff that the city hasn't really changed. Democrats have been in control of Philadelphia for a very long time, and the city is still ripe with poverty, with crime, with homelessness, with addiction. What what's what's the solution there? What's what I mean, so giving the Democratic Party the control again? Yeah, so I think it's two things. So I mean, when you talk about the solution to those issues, I think we kind of discussed some of them sure. throughout the course of the podcast. But when you talk about the solution to the Democratic Party, one of the hats that I wear is um, I'm actually the president of the Coaches Association for the Public League, hmm. right? And so um, I've been coaching high school basketball for ten years now. Um, I took over that position about five years ago. And when I took over the position, the reason why people wanted me to uh, be the person that led the Coaches Association for the Public League was because I had a good blend of being, you know, one of the younger, newer guys. I wasn't completely young and completely new. You know, I had been around for five years, and folks knew me. They had an idea what type of coach I was and what did I value. Um, 
But I also had a, a great relationship with uh, some of the older coaches who had been coaching for 20, 30, and 40 years. And there was a lot of myths about those guys. You know, some some guys had reputations for being great coaches. Some guys had reputations for being terrible coaches. And I had great relationships with all of them. And to be honest with you, a major reason why was because of my father. He mm-hmm. taught in the district for 42 years. And the older guys, they knew my father. They had a relationship with him from his time coaching and, 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 and being a union delegate and things of that capacity. And I see the Democratic Party is the same way. Um, you know, we we got a lot of new young blood that's coming in. There's I a see, lot of new. Yeah, uh, for sure. If you look party. at, um, I mean, and again, I've been running since 2011, mm-hmm. you know, so I ran in 2011, lost. Uh, when I ran in 2011, I was 26 years old. You know, it wasn't a young person that was looking to try to do what I had, that, that I was trying to do. And other young elected officials, who, well, other young people who are now elected officials, admired my effort, my tenacity, um, and my consistency. And so, when I think about the Democratic Party, I see it kind of like my role as the president of the Coaches Association, whereas though, you know, I got the respect and uh, the relationships with the with the young and the new folks. But I also understand the sacrifice of the old folks. And I have some old ties um, that put me in a position to have some credibility with the Democratic Party of old as well as the Democratic Party of new. And one of the things I was able to do as president of the Coaches Association is to bring both sides together and come up with innovative things that we could do to improve the public league game so that it can move forward in a positive capacity. And that was what I see my role as. You know, I, I, I do have great relationships with a lot of the young younger folks in the Democratic Party, and I got the respect of a lot of the older folks, a lot of endorsements and things of that capacity. And I see myself being that blend, you know, helping bring some of those creative ideas, some of those technolo- technologically savvy ideas, um, and most importantly, perspective. Um, I think that when you look at folks that look like me that come from where we come from, they're not – they have the ultimate level of voter apathy. You know, they don't believe in government. They've lost hope. Yeah. And, and and so for me, what I want to do is I want to be some level of inspiration as well. You know, I don't mind going into classrooms, you know, one day a week, two days a week, talking to young people about the importance of government and not just me and what I'm doing. And, you know, no, like, listen, man, let's break this thing down. You know, let's teach this thing from an academic perspective so you can understand executive branch, legislative branch, judicial branch. Let's get some key vocabulary words like incumbent and primary. You know, I taught political science and civics and government for a couple of years. Um, during my time at San Cofa Freedom Academy, and it was one of the most rewarding experiences as my, of my life. As a council person, that stuff needs to be amplified. We need more classrooms and more curriculums like that all across the city of Philadelphia because that's the only way we're going to change the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And what we do recognize is there is some level of modification that's required if we're going to be a Democratic city that services all Philadelphians because right now, we're not servicing all Philadelphians, pockets of the city and uh, certain um, tax bra- folks who live in certain tax brackets. They're having a way better experience in the city right Absolutely. now than the rest of us. And that has to change. Absolutely. Um, my last question is, uh, what's your most favorite thing in the world right now? My son and my wife. Easy. That was very easy. Very easy. Softball. Mm. Softball. Thank you, Isaiah. Yeah, Thank you. It, Thank was, you a, it was a pleasure having Appreciate you. It. Isaiah Thomas, council at large. Vote uh, number seventy-one. Isaiah Thomas running for city council at large. We love you. Have your vote May twenty-first in the Democratic primary. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Appreciate, Appreciate it. it. All right, I want to give a very special thanks to Isaiah Thomas for sitting with me today. Pay attention to what he said when he outlined 
the uh, composition of city council. Um, you have at-large representatives, and he's running for at-large. But then you also have district reps, and each individual person in the city has a district rep for their area. Um, at-large members focus on the city at-large. And within city council, they're the legislative branch, so their concern is writing laws and bills that impact the entire city that ultimately the mayor signs. And it's important to understand this because the things that really impact your individual lives, such as poverty, education, uh, taxes within the city, all of those things aren't done on the federal level. They're not done by people in D.C. They're really crucial to the individuals that are in our city, city council and the mayor. So Make sure you guys are understanding that when you have expectations on federal officials or even the president, when you think that uh, minimum wage is this or that, those things are in control by city government. Our, our city has control over increasing our minimum wage. Um, our city has control over things like stop and frisk. Our city has control over how much uh, funding goes to our school, especially since the Philadelphia School Commission has been dissolved and we now have a board of officials. All of these things that impact your everyday life, that's all done by your local city council members. So know who they are, know what they represent, and how they can better your community the roads you drive on, the taxes you pay, the education, and the poverty levels within your city. The Democratic primary for uh, city council is going to be May 21st, so make sure you guys are getting out there and voting. Uh, this is not a specific endorsement of Isaiah, but I think he represents uh, a number of different issues, um, and we can talk in depth about certain topics that um, – uh, it's crucial to just improving the conversation within our community and making sure that we are progressing, not just on a political aspect, but also um, our dialogue when it comes to education, when it comes to just our engagement within politics, um, how communities are are addressed when it comes to levels of poverty and policing, all of those things that we talked about. It's important to further those conversations with people you both disagree with and agree with. So uh, if you guys have any other questions, I do have some really uh, good candidates coming up on the next few weeks of the podcast. Um, I'm going to be sitting with city council member at large, Derek Green. Um, he's going to be on in the next few weeks. And if you have any questions, any further questions about the functions of city hall, specific laws that you think need to be changed or enacted and, and how we can address poverty within our city, you can always email me your questions at realtalk at com. Follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Salaz Corner. And make sure you check out my website, com. Until next time, peace, y'all.